Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. For those of you who do not know me, I'm Associate Pastor Jonathan Lucia, and welcome again. Uh, this, uh, this last week, halfway through the week uh, before I read uh, today's scripture, halfway through the week I added a, an additional verse. Um, and let me explain. So uh, <clears throat> the text that precedes today's passage um, is a story of Jesus on the Sabbath with his disciples, and they're walking through a field, and I can imagine it's a wheat field, and I can imagine, I mean, because this is what I would do. I would walk through and kind of touch the tops of it, you know, and um, they, grab, they grab the kernels, and, you know, I guess they needed a snack, so they, they ate some kernels of kernels, I don't know, wheat, wheat stuff. And, um, and, the, and, the, and you know, the, the bad guys are there and, and they're like, oh, you see, they're harvesting on the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath. And it's like, we got them. Um, that precedes today's text. And there's one verse that bridges that text with today's text. And so I added that. It, may, it kind of feels uncomfortable at first, but now you understand why it's there. Um, so today's text is from Mark chapter 2, verses 20, verse 27 through chapter 3, verse 6. Then Jesus said to the Pharisees, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to them, stretch out your hand. It said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> uh, loving God, uh, we thank you for this day. <clears throat> and for um, the opportunity we have to gather together as a community of faith uh, centered in you. We ask now that as we turn to this scripture, that, would, that it would speak to our hearts and minds, um, that it would transform who we are. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. A moment of truth. A moment of truth. In the summer of 1985, I had the, uh, I was blessed with a wonderful family, and uh, we had the opportunity to go on vacation. Um, I have four siblings. Two of them were old enough that they were out of the house. But my sister and I and my parents, uh, we flew to Toronto and a little geography. Uh, it was a great trip. And um, I didn't know Toronto was, uh, I was thinking back on it, and I had to look at a map because I remembered going to Niagara Falls. Toronto and Niagara Falls are like an hour apart from each other. So we went to Niagara Falls. From there, we drove to Montreal. And from Montreal, we drove to Quebec. And I was emailing uh, both my sister and my dad this week, 
trying to recall some of the memories. And in the email, my dad said, and I was rather surprised that they, they, that they spoke French in Quebec. <laughs> I'm surprised that my dad was surprised that they speak French in Quebec. So then from there, we crossed over uh, into, back into the United States, into upper New York State, where we caught up with family friends of ours. Um, and they owned this beautiful property that was on a peninsula that pushed out into Lake George. And uh, this family, uh, their, their youngest son, whose name was also Jonathan, because that's how it is, Jonathan's hang out with each other. So <clears throat> he, was my, he was in my class in high school, and then he had older siblings that were the same age as my sister. So it, it was, you know, it was cool. And I remember we showed up in, in the dusk of that first evening and it's summer in upper New York state and it's, you know, it's humid and it's warm. And I, and it was like in my mind's eye, it was like a mansion. It was like three stories high and you know, typical kind of East coast thing. It was all painted that white and it had a basement. So it was like four stories on this peninsula. And there was a lot of excitement. And Jonathan was like, do you water ski? And I'm like, well, I, I have water skied. And he goes, okay, well, tomorrow morning, we're going to be getting up early and we're going to go water skiing. Um, and I was like, okay. So the next morning, uh, you know, we got a, I got up early and, and we had to get up early in the morning because in the, mor in the early morning, that's when the lake was all the glassiest to go water skiing. And um, so we got up and, and we literally just walked from the house, house mansion down, down the peninsula to, to the dock. And when I think of water skiing, I think of 1970s fiberglass, like, sprayed speedboats, right? And I, I don't know much about water skiing, but to be honest with you, <laughs> secret, I don't know much about water skiing. When we got down there, what, what I saw was instead this beautiful, classic, maybe like 1955, it was an all-wood speedboat. Um, so, like in Simi Valley, we have a lot of classic cars driving around. In that part of the world, they have a lot of classic boats around. And uh, it was, I kind of felt weird even getting into the boat, and it was my sister and uh, the two siblings and then myself and then the other Jonathan. And so I was the first one to, to ski and, they, and they're like, well, I don't know, whatever. They, they thought I couldn't ski. So, so uh, can, can you get up on skis? And I'm like, well, yeah. And I guess they picked up on it. So they had me sit on the edge of the dock <clears throat> and have, with the skis and they got the boat out and then they just hit the guns on the boat and I was pulled off the dock and boom, and we're off and running. So I only skied for like five, it felt like five minutes. And then I, you know, I blew it and ate it. And I thought like I'd have a second chance and they circled around. They're like, okay, get in the boat. And I'm like, that's it. So my sister went and then the other siblings went. And what I realized, I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to ski more and they didn't give me the chance. <clears throat> but they had a plan. And the plan was that they were heading to the far end of the, this lake. It was, it was a long, skinny lake, Lake George, at least in my memory it was. They kept going, they kept going, and then they arrived at a cliff and they pulled up to the boat and cut the engines and kind of floated in and there were two boats already there and this cliff was pretty extensive. And when we got there, there was like a mom with maybe a 10-year-old daughter and they were on the lowest part of the cliff, kind of standing there in that moment of hesitation and then they jumped off and, and Jonathan turned to me and says, we're going we're gonna to cliff cliff jump. And I was like, cool, because I just seen these two, no problem. You know, it looks like a high dive. And from the water, it certainly looks different. And he goes, no, we're going to go. And now the number stuck in my head was 60, like 63 feet is what he said. It's a 63 foot high cliff. And I'm going, but, but I think, I think I have the number wrong because I, I anyways, I'll tell you in a second. So, <laughs> so I'm looking and what it is, is it's, it was like le different ledges of this cliff. And I'd like to say, so it, 
<laughs> so there was this little ledge, and like, and like for ledge one was you'd, you'd scoot out. And then ledge two, you'd scoot out. And my sister and Jonathan and I swam uh, to the shore and kind of scrambled up the side of the cliff where it was dirt. And my sister was just immediately like checked it out and she was straight for the first one. And Jonathan looked at me like, we're going to the top. And I'm like, okay. And so my sister kind of got out and she jumped off, no problem. And then there was a second ledge and I was kind of looking and that second ledge was probably about 20 feet-ish. But we passed that, we just kept going. So we go up higher and so I said 63, I think it was more like 35 feet. I don't know why that number, because 63 just sounds like it's really way up there. But it was probably the height, I, I went out and looked at the Family Life Center. It was probably about the, the top of the peak of the Family Life Center. So Jonathan, like who had been uh, there all summer long, had done this multiple times. So he just walked out and so, there was like ledge one, ledge two, and then the top was rounded. And so you had to jump, get enough speed to jump out far enough so that you didn't heat, hit the ledges going down. <laughs> so, uh, so, but he had done it all summer. So he went out and he just started running and he jumped. And now I'm there kind of like, it's early in the morning, the other two boats had gone and it's us and I'm alone at the top of a, this cliff. So I walked out there and then I'm thinking, I don't want to, do I want to do this? I'm just having the whole dialogue with myself and I'm freaking out. Like, Part of my ego was like, well, I have to do it because Jonathan just did it. And I don't want to do the walk of shame and go back down. to. The... So I'm sitting there and then I'm like, yeah. And so I remember turning away from the water because when you're looking at the water, from, it looks way different from the shore than it does when you're standing at the top. But from the top, it looks like a black hole of death. And even though I had just seen Jonathan jump and do it, right? And what's, what's interesting also is like when he jumped, like he disappeared, like count one, count two, count three. And I'm sitting there going, where did he go? And then thank God he came up. I'm like, okay, so he's alive. So, so, I'm, so then I'm thinking, and then just nonsensical. It makes no sense. He had just made the jump and I'm thinking, yeah, but when I jump, it's like six inches shallow. Like I'm just gonna hit something. Anyway, so I turned away. And just moment of truth, I'm just like, I'm gonna do this. And I just spun around and I ran and I jumped, woo! And I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but what happens is you have this kind of like, I'm weightless and floating on the air. And then all of a sudden you feel gravity and gravity feels really heavy from that height. And what happens is you kind of hear, I'm floating. And then you kind of slowly start, but then, from that height, like there's no, usually you just jump in a pool and you're in the water. It's like all of a sudden you feel the speed of gravity sucking you to death. And I'm like going, ah, and then I think in my mind's eye, I was like six feet above the water. And I thought to myself, this is going to hurt because that water is probably going to feel like concrete. So at the last second, I did the whole like, I'm a stick, I'm a stick, get on the, and I'm poof. And again, if you've never done this, you submerge and all of a sudden it's like warm water, light. And then you're like, wait, the light is fading. And then, oh my gosh, it's really cold because you go so deep. And then I'm like, I really am going to die. <laughs> so then, and then it stops. And then you, I scrambled to the top and it came out. Thank you, I lived. Still here to tell the touch story. But there was just that moment of truth of like, am I going to do this or not? And in life, there's all types of moments of truth. Um, it may be that decision for a couple to get engaged, that there's a moment of truth there. 
And unfortunately, but I think it's just as true, or maybe even more true, sometimes there are couples who get engaged, and moment of truth, they have to come to the decision to break up. Moment of truth. Perhaps um, a moment of truth might be a new job or a promotion, and they're going to ask you, more money, great, you know, promotion, great, but you're going to have to move. And moment of truth, are you going to stay you know, in your community, or are you going to pick up and start over again? Moment of truth. Um, I have never been nominated to be president of the United States. But I imagine for those who have been, that's a moment of truth too. The weight of what that responsibility might be and what they are going to go through to um, you know, get into office. Uh, that must be a moment of truth as well. The moment of truth. Are you going to jump into the game or are you going to stay on the sidelines? Are you going to jump into the deep end or are you going to stay in the shallow end? In today's scripture, we see a similar phenomenon going on. Jesus throws down the gauntlet. Definitely a moment of truth. And it's as if to say, like in a movie, everything in this text, everything goes silent. Verse 4, Jesus then asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. It's a moment of truth, like that. Now, I'm going to say more about verse 4 in a moment. But before I do, let me give uh, the first fill-in for today's outline, which is on, in your bulletin. Number one, Jesus saw the need. Jesus saw the need. Verse 3, stand up in front of everyone. So let me first talk about the man with the shriveled hand. Now, uh, in our scripture, it's just a man with a shriveled hand. Um, and there are extra, there's extra biblical material, and I should explain that. Extra biblical material uh, sometimes were stories about an event that were added by the community after the scripture, like the oldest versions of the scripture. So sometimes it could have been 20 years, 30 years, 100 years later, and, and uh, something is added to it. And scholars can look at it and recognize that is extra biblical. That's not really what was there originally. Um, and um, sometimes it's obvious as well because it's like the nature of extra biblical material leads to like a mythology. It kind of reads like fantastical. It's, it's like a legend and it's not hi historically accurate. So generally speaking, biblical scholars don't really give much credence to um, extra biblical material. But for the sake of discussion and consideration this morning, I'm going to talk about it. Because in some extra-biblical material, the man with the shriveled hand, which is just a man with a shriveled hand in today's text, um, allegedly, well, allegedly was a man uh, who, and I, I honestly, I should have looked it up last night, I forgot. Um, I can't remember if it said like he was a carpenter or if he was like a mason, but he, he basically worked with his hands in construction, and the extra-biblical uh, material basically alludes to the fact like his hand was somehow crushed on the job. So he wasn't born with a physical uh, 
disability, a disfigured hand. This is something that happened during his life on the job. The man with the shriveled hand was allegedly a man, and he was out of work because of this. And he, therefore, he was unable to provide for himself. He was unable to provide for those who relied on him. This is significant because in today's scripture, this additional information would lead us to believe that the need is not just a physical healing. It's an economic one as well. Pastor John, during this series, um, Truly Natural, has been talking about a lot of these healings on one works on several levels, and one level is physical, but others kind of elude and, and, and bring in other things. And in this case, it's a physical healing, yes, but it also uh, brings in this idea of an economic healing for at least this man and perhaps his family as well. 2,000 years ago, there's no workers' compensation for accidents on the job. 2,000 years ago, there's no Phys uh, Physical Disabilities Act. 2,000 years ago, there's no federal social security to protect and help provide for him and for those who rely on him. Historically, we know that instead of having the dignity of working and providing, he instead, most likely, would have been reduced to begging. Jesus saw the need. Jesus saw the whole need. He saw all of that. And to make sure that everyone else saw the need, Jesus commanded the man with the shriveled hand to stand up in front of everyone gathered there in the synagogue that morning, as if to say, are you really going to allow this tragedy to go unseen? Jesus saw the need. Unfortunately for us, it begs the question, how often do we see the need? Are our eyes trained to see the need? Or as a culture, are we more prone to look the other way? After all, we rationalize, we can't be held responsible to fix something if we never see that it's broken. And remember, it's a physical healing and more. In this case, this biblical healing addresses a systemic domino effect as well. Jesus saw the need. Now, in contrast, number two in your outline, yet this, the Pharisees, Pharisaw, nothing. The Pharisees, Pharisaw, nothing. Thank you, Danielle. Don't be afraid to laugh. It's okay. Verse four, but they remained silent. Verse five, Jesus was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So for those of you who don't know, first let me uh, explain who the Pharisees were. Now, in contrast, in, in the first century, scribes and Pharisees are two distinct groups. Presumably, some scribes were Pharisees, um, but not all scribes. Scribes had the knowledge of the law and could draft legal documents. Contracts of marriage, contracts of divorce, loans, inheritances, uh, mortgages, uh, land for sale, etc. Every village would have had at least one scribe. Pharisees were members of a party of the religious elite that believed in resurrection and in following the legal traditions that were ascribed to the traditions of the fathers. Like the scribes, they were legal experts as well. And <clears throat> to, so there's a power dynamic as well. So 
the Pharisees in this case, why are the Pharisees even there? Why are they interested in Jesus? Well, the power center is Jerusalem, and you've got the, the center of the religious power, which is the temple, and you've got the government power as well, Herod and Herod's government, uh, regional government, so the Herodians. And, um, you know, anytime there was an upstart out there in the country, um, you know, suspicions, you know, is this a threat to our power or not? And so Pharisees would have been sent out to check it out. So in verse 2, it says, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So it's not, at this point, they don't even have an open mind about it. They're just looking for a reason for accusation. For, verse 2, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Now here's a moment of truth. Here's a moment of truth. The religious leaders of the day are not only blind because they choose not to see the man, shriveled, the man with the shriveled hand, but they are also mute. They are blind and they are mute. They balk. Instead of exercising their duty to lead people into a deeper understanding of God, instead of exercising their duty to lead people into a deeper understanding of the Torah, their silence speaks volumes. And Jesus is recorded as being deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Unfortunately for us, it begs the question, if and when we see something wrong, how often do we speak up? To, fair, to paraphrase John Stuart Mill, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. I want to talk about uh, that, this verse the, and, and, and um, explain the contrast here in that verse 4. It says, you know, to do, Jesus asks, which is lawful uh, on the Sabbath, to do good or to, e to do evil? Now, obviously, we'd lean to, it's the Sabbath, it's to do good, and to save a life or to kill. There, uh, in, and I'm going to talk about the, the, the original language, to save a life, uh, same language, life, but to, in English, it's translated to kill. Um, the Greek is a little more um, descriptive, I would say, and really, the Greek actually points to language that, um, well, let me just say it, to condemn to death, to execute. And it's the same language that in, uh, later in chapter 6 is going to be used when they talk about John the Baptist, and then later on, obviously, when Jesus is, is arrested and so on. It's the same language. So this language first appears in the Gospel Mark here, and it's not just which is, le uh, <laughs> which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil to save a life, or to execute someone. So Jesus saw the need. The Pharisees, Pharisees saw nothing. And number three, Jesus committed to caring. Jesus committed to caring. Verse five, Jesus said to them, stretch out your hand, said to him, stretch out your hand. And his hand was completely restored. Um, you noticed it's been raining, raining a lot. <laughs> uh, I, it's been raining since like December. 
And the reason why it's, I mean, we're all paying attention because last night someone said, it's so green. And I'm like, yeah, it's really green. And we're not used to that. It's, <laughs> someone told me, when I first moved to Simi Valley, this was last night, when I first moved to Simi Valley, it was a rainy year like this year. And I thought Simi Valley was always like this. So they bought the house. <laughs> Sucker. Um, it felt like Ireland. Um, Right, so it's been raining a lot, and I know I know it's been raining since December because, and this is the way I know, it's, I've only ridden my motorcycle twice since December, and that's significant. And, and the only reason is because like every time there's a couple dry days and I'm like, I'm gonna get on my motorcycle and go riding, all of a sudden it rains again. And I'm like, okay, not again. So it's been a while. We are so blessed. Everyone here has a roof over their head and a bed to sleep in. Have you thought about what it might be like to be homeless in all of this weather? And if you've seen the news of uh, Skid Row and other areas just being flooded out, uh, it's rough. Now, uh, in the news recently, in the last like month, there's been news about a guy named Dave Grohl. And if you don't know who Dave Grohl is, Dave Grohl is the, the founder and lead singer of the band The Foo Fighters. So he's a rock and roll star and he has a lot of money. So uh, what's really cool is Dave Grohl, uh, <clears throat> he, I mean, right, it's, he lives in Southern, honestly, he lives right over there. He lives in the Conejo Valley, but shh, don't tell anybody. Um, and obviously he's looking at the weather and he, so one of his passions is music, uh, but apparently one of his passions is grilling and smoking meats. And I, apparently because he's a bajillionaire, he has like this huge setup. And he's looking at the weather, and he's seeing the news about the homeless folks being flooded. And so he, he loads up his smoker and his barbecue onto a trailer, and he drives down to Skid Row, and he spent 17 hours grilling and smoking meats, and he served over 500 people. That's the first time. And then, a couple weeks later, he did it. I think he went to Elysian Park and, and, and got in connection with uh, some folks that feed folks in the park. He connected with them, and the whole band, the Foo Fighters, went down there, and they did the same thing. For like another 12 hours, they smoked meat and they barbecued. And this time, it's not like they just handed off the food and left. They actually stood in line and served the people. Now, I am not elevating Dave Grohl to sainthood, and I don't think he would do that himself. But here's my point. He's a bajillionaire, and he has the time, and he has the resources to do something like this. Like him, and unlike him. We're not that. However, all of us have resources. And the magic of all of this is to figure out how God has blessed us, how God has given us life experiences, um, how God has resourced us, and, be, and what our passions are, right? But one of his passions is grilling and, and barbecuing and all this. So, so what are our passions and what are our giftedness and what have we been blessed with? And the, the magic of this is the equation of like figuring that out and then looking at the world that we live in, which is full of all sorts of different types of need. And then the magic is to then go, okay, how can I bridge those two? And then the moment of truth. Do it. Jesus saw the need, and then he committed to caring. In contrast, the Pharisees plotted to kill. Verse 6, they plotted to kill how they might, they, how they might kill Jesus. Can you imagine? <clears throat> I mean, you know, all of our hearts and minds can wander even on a Sunday on our way to church, but they're, they're in church. They're in celebrating the Sabbath. They're in the synagogue. 
And Jesus is challenging them, you know, life or death, good or evil, life or, or executing someone. And they're in church plotting to kill. And so the contrast is made very clear in today's scripture intentionally. They're leaving church plotting to kill Jesus. Let me conclude with this. On Thursday, December 1st, 1955, a 42-year-old woman was commuting home by bus for a, from a long day of work at a department store. Black residents of Montgomery often avoided the city buses because they found the Negroes in the back policy to be so demeaning. Nonetheless, 70% of ridership was made up of uh, African-Americans. And on this day, this woman was one of them. Segregation was the law. The front of the bus was reserved for white citizens and the seats behind them for black citizens. And by custom, bus drivers had the authority to ask a black person to give up a seat for a white rider. At one point on the route, a white man had no seat because all of the seats were, that were designated for the, in the white section were taken. And so the bus driver ordered the riders in the four seats of the first row of the colored section to stand. In effect, he was adding another row to the white section. And the others obeyed. Moment of truth, she did not. Eventually, two police officers approached the stopped bus, assessed the situation, and arrested her. And shortly thereafter, because of her action, she lost her job as well. Quote, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, writes Rosa Parks in her autobiography. But this isn't true. I wasn't tired physically. No, I only was tired of segregation. Of course, because of her courage, Rosa Parks is known as the mother of the civil rights movement, and she helped change our nation's social ill of segregation. She helped heal our nation's social ill of segregation. And eventually, with the help of many like-minded people, she helped bring healing to our nation. Systemic change. Let's pray. Say
Flowing through 
Great. 